I'm Jack Semlicka, and welcome to this episode of our 2018 Strip-Till Farmer podcast series. Today's program, Adapting Strip-Till to Mother Nature's Timetable, is being brought to you by Topcon Agriculture. If this is your first time tuning in, you can subscribe to this series and get updates on future episodes currently available in iTunes, the Google Play Store, SoundCloud, Stitcher Radio, and TuneIn Radio. Or if you prefer another app for listening to podcasts, let us know and we'll look to get it added. Thanks again to Topcon Agriculture for its support of this podcast series. Agronomy matters and Topcon Agriculture application solutions make it work. From planning to precision machine control, Norax boom height control, monitoring and mapping to data management, you have the total set of solutions to maximize your agronomic plan. Find out how to make the most of your 4R nutrient stewardship with precision technology that is unmatched in ease of use. Visit them at topconpositioning.com slash growing solutions. Sometimes the best plan in strip-till is to plan for the unexpected. This is a philosophy Jerry Basinger knows well after more than 20 years of strip-tilling. He strip-tills about 3,000 acres of corn and soybeans near Bruning, Nebraska, and was one of the first farmers to embrace the practice in his area. He also operates his own equipment dealership, JBI Enterprises, where he custom builds strip-till toolbars. One key to his long-term success is adapting to whatever mother nature throws at him, and being able to adjust his strip-till operation to account for unpredictable weather and build berms in the fall, winter, or spring. In today's Strip-Till Farmer podcast brought to you by Topcon Agriculture, Jerry shares effective nutrient management techniques, seed placement strategies, and residue clearing methods that have contributed to yield increases on his operation. We do strip-till on an annual basis, uh, a minimum of 1,500 acres, and that's our corn acres. If we do have time, we we do strip-till our bean ground. A lot of times Mother Nature throws that curveball at us and we don't get time to uh, strip till all, all of the ground that we're going to plant beans in, but we sure try. Uh, we strip till uh, <laughs> mainly in, uh, in the same calendar year as our crop um, for a couple of reasons. <clears throat> Number one, the biggest reason here the last 10 years is our farm was enrolled into the CSP program. And one of the stipulations in our contract with NRCS was we did not do not apply ammonia after January 1. So, or do apply, we gotta wait till January 1. So a lot of our fall application <clears throat> uh, kind of went to this wayside on our own farm, but we do some custom work uh, for some neighbors. And a lot of times that's done either right after harvest or through December if the weather allows. Most of our strip tilling is uh, done early uh, spring in that late February to March timeframe. Our weather patterns sometimes give us a few days uh, in the late winter where we can actually go out, we get a thaw, spring, late winter, early spring thaw, and we can actually get into the field. Our equipment, uh, we're 12 row, 30 inch is our strip till equipment. Uh, we're a corn soybean rotation. We do have some uh, wheat on some of our dryland acres, and uh, then we plant uh, dryland corn uh, in, into those uh, wheat acres the following year. We set up our own uh, tanks. Um, 
I, I tell my young sons I, I robbed their college fund here a few years ago to set up some of these trailers, but we wanted equipment that we could uh, build our strips and not have to worry about uh, traffic tire tracks on our strips. Um, our strips are real sacred. We stay off our strips at all costs. And that means at harvest time, um, I'm usually on the radio telling the help running the grain carts to not drive down the rows where we're gonna strip next year. So we really watch where <clears throat> our traffic uh, routes are with our equipment, especially in the fall. This is a, typically what our field looks like before we go in and strip till, and a lot like other uh, your fields as well where we've got residue probably for the last two to three years uh, that we have to contend with. And our strip till, we basically just farm about 10 inches of that 30 inch spacing. This is our area of influence. Uh, this is the area where we are planting, where we put all of our nutrients. Uh, that, that's, our, that's our pot. That's where we plant our crop. The area in between, the other 20 inches, is what I refer to as our sponge or our trash can. That's, that's where we store our residue. Uh, that's where our moisture uh, is stored a lot of times when we get the heavy down rain, uh, downpours of rain. And that's also where a lot of our, uh, root, or our uh, root activity from earthworms occurs too. Our earthworms are underneath all this residue. Uh, we can go out in the spring and rake that residue away and find earthworm activity. We're, I'm a big fan of anhydrous. Uh, anhydrous has worked really well for me the last 20 plus years in strips. Um, there's some management issues that we've learned over the years with using anhydrous in strips and I'll talk about that here uh, later in the talk, but um, uh, it's worked really well for us. Um, I have a, an equipment business uh, that we actually build uh, anhydrous toolbars. So I've got a lot of customers that are using anhydrous and we work with them to, to perfect uh, those applications and strip-till applications. We mainly, with our strip-till application or our trip across the field is mainly anhydrous. Um, for those fields that are needing other nutrients, phosphorus, sulfur, maybe a little potassium. We don't do a lot of potassium in our part of the world. Our soils are very high in potassium. Um, whether it's plant available or not, you know, I can argue all day long on that. I, I think adding potassium is, is, will benefit us. But we can address those issues with another machine. And, and we, we actually built this machine uh, to apply phosphorus anytime after harvest. So I'll, this fall we'll have a guy in there. Uh, as soon as we get our soil test back, we soil, we soil sample every farm every year. As soon as we get our results back, we'll uh, make a prescription and there'll be a, a person just going out and putting on phosphorus or whatever nutrients we need uh, with, with this uh, coulter machine. And then what we'll do is come back in the spring and on that same strip area, apply the ammonia and make our seed bed. I hire my soil sampling done, and my, uh, my crop consultant that I use, um, we sit down and, and 
on a farm-by-farm -farm basis, figure out what we want to do on, depending on um, the cropping systems. But when they soil sample, uh, they pull their samples out of two areas, out of the strip and in between. So he's got two buckets. Then when we get the results back, it's, you know, we, we've got two different analysis. We know what's in the strip and we know what's in between. So we just kind of make a best guess on what we want to apply in that particular area. All of our fertilizer, with the exception of Pell Lime, is applied subsurface. I do not spread anything on top of the ground. And as I get into the presentation here, I'll show you why this year especially was a good idea not to have it on top of the ground, but uh, everything is uh, put subsurface. Well, organic matter is going to be different a little bit. Um, some of our residual nitrogen, some of our um, uh, phosphorus levels are different. So that's what we've been finding. Um, sometimes our pH is different. I've, I've noticed that as well. And that is because we're using ammonia. But we're using Pell Lime, uh, especially on our rented acres. Uh, it's quick. Um, and it, we do broadcast that, and we're trying to perfect a way we can put that over our strip to keep it right in that, that sweet spot. And then the other thing is, with all the residue in between the rows, it's much harder for that to, to break down and actually get into the soil uh, versus on the strip. So I'm trying to, to keep everything over the strip. Ideally, that area in between, that's, that's my sponge. That, that holds whatever moisture we get through the winter and then, of course, through the growing season. It also helps with compaction, believe it or not. Um, with our grain carts and the combine, you know, there's a lot of weight there, as you well know, and, and uh, it sure, sure makes a difference when you've got a bunch of residue out there uh, for compaction reasons. I don't know if I could really honestly stand here and classify myself as a strip-till expert. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm more of an experienced strip-tiller, I guess you could say, over the years. Um, when I get that cocky feeling that I'm an expert, then something happens, and, and usually it's Mother Nature that comes in and, and uh, screws everything up. And, and this year, you know, she, she gave us a pretty good kick in the groin um, right after um, strip-tilling season. Most, most of you look like you're kind of old enough in here. Remember the old uh, uh, chiffon commercial, you know, the, the gal that says, it's not nice to fool with Mother Nature and big old lightning bolt come down. I was back in the 70s there, so I'm kind of aging myself, but, but uh, I thought of that this spring when, uh, when the, the heavens opened up and started raining on us. Um, strip tilling was, was a dream this spring. I mean, going into planting season, corn planting season, we had the best strips, we had the best soil moisture, um, we had the best emergence. And, uh, and then it started, uh, started raining. This was an article that came out of the Des Moines Register. And uh, the, the second half of planting season sure felt a lot like that for us. As I said, the strip tilling season, mainly for us this year, was in the early March period. And you know, it was just absolutely beautiful. We had a great freeze, no compaction. The ground was so mellow, very little rain, very little sleep. So we were able to you know, to run day in and day out. Uh, April, going into planting season, we had some timely rains, got the, the corn to germinate and, and come out of the ground. Uh, everything looked great. But then when May hit, uh, in fact, the evening of May 6, um, we got pelted. And we ended up 
at our shop there with a little over 13 inches of rain in about a five hour period. Uh, countywide, anywhere from six to, to that 13 inch range. And we were right in the bullseye. And it didn't, uh, it, took, it took a couple weeks for, for that to, to dry out and, and dissipate. But then in June, we started getting rain again and they were big rains, three inches at a time, four inches at a time. So soybean planting was, was a struggle to get done there towards the uh, end of spring. But yeah, we had 14, almost 14 and a half inches there, 11.22 uh, in June. So our, our grounds was really saturated moist, with moisture. Uh, typically in our county, I looked up the uh, history, our annual average rainfall is about 31 inches a year. So we had just about our annual rainfall in about a two and a half month period this year. This was the morning of May 7th, and um, some of my fields that were down on our bottom ground uh, were, were underwater. And um, luckily, I hadn't planted them yet. Um, they were a little on the wet side. We had some wheat stubble in some dry land, and the irrigated um, we just hadn't got to yet. It was uh, within a day or so of, of that stormy bit we were going to get it planted. But um, every stream um, around was out of its banks. Uh, there's actually a perennial stream right back here next to our farm that um, uh, it, it went out and um, did some damage. Uh, when everything receded and, and we were able to get in the field and <clears throat> Uh, do our recovery cleanup process, why it's amazing what floats of water. And um, we found rototiller, um, refrigerator, and, and water bottles. It's amazing how many water bottles uh, we found in that field when we got done. It looked like we planted water bottles out there. But um, anyway, uh, I sent a I posted it on my Facebook page and I had some friends from uh, Illinois hit me back and told me to shut my pivot off. <laughs> but um, it closed down the railroad tracks, that washed the railroad tracks, the uh, um, rock out from underneath the rails there. And, and so, yeah, it, was, it, was, it, it made a mess. It really uh, took the wind out of our sails. Um, a lot of debris left the fields. Um, and what debris didn't leave the field stayed there in big piles. And so the county, county had their work cut out for them. You know, they had a lot of a lot of this to contend with. Um, and some of this, uh, you know, is, you don't know. I mean, it, you hope for the best and hope nothing, a disaster happens, but this, this was on a field that had some vertical tillage. You know, the guy prepped his field for bean, planting beans and, you know, did a nice job. It's just Mother Nature um, didn't cooperate. A lot of erosion. You know, you guys are all familiar with this. and. Uh, uh, this wasn't a strip-till field. This was actually one of my uh, neighbor customers' fields. And the one thing I wanted to point out here was he doesn't strip-till. He's, he's got a toolbar that's on uh, an odd configuration where he's actually going into wheel tracks with these knives. But this is the anhydrous trailer tracks here. They went, right, went down right a, a knife mark. And this over here, I assume, is one of these duels. Um, so... Another thing that we've noticed in our hill ground that um, the guys that aren't strip tilling and they're pulling these odd machines and running shanks behind the tractor tires and then of course pulling a trailer that's running right into that track, it leaves a divot and you're gonna, you're gonna see some of that 
erosion in, in those hillsides. This is one of our fields that was already planted and, and out of the ground and doing great when we uh, got the storm. Um, this is probably a, I would say a six to seven percent slope. And um, we had just some areas that would blow out. Not the whole row, but it would be just certain areas. And um, for some reason, I really didn't have time to investigate, but we would have six, eight foot blowout and then be perfectly fine. Um, so it was really hard to decide whether we needed to replant or, or go in and, and slot in some corn. We ended up making a, uh, a two row planter and uh, we were able to go in and, and kind of slot in some of these bigger areas. Uh, really tough to go in with a 24 row and do that, but um, it is doable. It just takes time and, and patience. And I wasn't the one doing it. I had to get somebody else to do it because it just made me sick when I saw that. Uh, on the hill ground where we didn't, uh, where we hadn't planted corn yet, we were able to go in and do a kind of a rescue treatment. And, uh, you know, Kevin and, and Bill both talked about having multiple tools in your toolbox. And this is a case here where we actually, I'm punching the wrong button here, we actually uh, took a knife off and attached a colder assembly. Um, and also took uh, wavy blades and replaced the notched concave blades, the sealing disc. And uh, we ended up taking the row cleaner off when we were uh, going back into those fields to rebuild those strips. But this actually worked pretty nice. Um, so we, actually, we had a tool that we could convert um, in a day's time and, and rescue our strips that were already made. We didn't give up. Um, Another tool that we have, and we've used this for years, and I um, first approached Yetter about this back in 2006, um, but we got a soil finisher that was just sitting and doing nothing. And uh, so we ended up taking the shovels off, yeah, 2006, and, and putting these double hub assemblies on there. And we use this quite a bit. We use it for touching up washouts uh, on some of our hillsides. And Obviously, this year we used it to touch up our washed out strips. And it doesn't go very deep. In fact, these, these front gangs, we barely have those in the ground. Um, unless it's a deep washout, then we can kind of suck those in a little bit to move a little soil. But those, those are mainly up most of the time. And then these, uh, these blades on here really, um, they don't move a lot of soil and it's more vertical uh, action. So it leaves a residue on top that's there, because I love residue, and I want to leave it on top of the soil. I don't want to bury it. I don't own a disc. Uh, this is the only tillage tool I, I own other than my strip tool bars. We'll get back to Jerry's discussion shortly, but I wanted to once again thank our sponsor, Topcon Agriculture, for making this podcast possible. Agronomy matters, and Topcon Agriculture Application Solutions make it work. From planning to precision machine control, NORAX boom height control, monitoring and mapping, to data management, you have the total set of solutions to maximize your agronomic plan. Find out how to make the most of your 4R nutrient stewardship with precision technology that is unmatched in ease of use. 
Visit them at topconpositioning.com slash growing solutions. Well, Jerry noted that he has worked with a local crop consultant to grid sample his fields in the fall for the last 13 years. One of his initial projects was a 10-year trial of pelletized lime application in a strip-till research plot. The goal of the ongoing trial is to examine and increase soil health. Each year, Jerry applies 200 to 350 pounds per acre of pelletized lime and nothing else through winter or early spring. What he's found so far is that it leads to an increase in organic matter, but also increases phosphorus levels in the soil. Jerry says the trial is a textbook method for boosting fertility, but few strip tillers in his area use pelletized lime because it's more expensive than agricultural lime. He's seen pH levels rise from the 4 to 5 range at the start of the trial to the 6 to 7 range without application of additional phosphorus. Let's get back to the program now and hear more from Jerry Basinger on some of the common mistakes made in strip-till and some simple solutions. I want to switch gears here a little bit and talk about some strip-till issues that I've seen over the years. And and as I mentioned, I've got an equipment business. And so we we work with a lot of growers uh, on toolbar setups. We build toolbars for them, obviously, and, and uh, the, some of the things that I've seen over the years, and I'm still seeing them today, that that um, you may be aware of, and and or maybe have seen before, and I just kind of want to touch on them here. Um, fertilizer delivery. Bill mentioned it, and I agree 100% with him. If you're going to be out there strip tilling, you might as well be putting fertilizer on. You might as well get more bang out of your buck. Um, you're making that trip, it costs money to make that trip, so you might as well be doing, uh, doing some other things while you're out there. Uh, uniformity of fertilizer. Probably our number one issue um, when we talk about ammonia application in strip-till. And then the flow issues. Getting the stuff out of the tank, getting it to the applicator. Um, those are all issues that we see every year. The streaking, we've all seen some form of this, driving up and down the road, um, or experienced it ourselves. It can happen in strip-till, it can happen in any other type of uh, fertilizer application. If, if, um, if there's a, a, a problem with a knife, for example, being plugged, or uh, a manifold that's, that's uh, plugged, a hose that's pinched or kinked, uh, anything can cause this um, that's, that's disturbing the delivery of the product. This particular field here, uh, the fertilizer was actually put on an angle and the rows were planted at, at a straight with a field. So this is a situation where it would be a little difficult to go in and rescue it with uh, say a colder machine putting some liquid on. This field here is actually my neighbor's field. Uh, also a customer of mine, um, he had a, a 16, still has it, he's got a 16 row strip till bar. And um, he had one row show up that was yellow uh, throughout the field. He has uh, um, about 2,000 acres. And what we found was um, one, one knife was partially plugged. It was, it was still, according to the employee, it was still blowing smoke, so it wasn't plugged. And uh, we figured it was probably only putting on 10 or 15% of the required nitrogen. 
he had 2,000 acres of corn, and, and I, I want to kind of throw some numbers at you here to kind of make you think of what, what that really costs. Now, he was able to go in and, and put some liquid on, but that still costs money. But if it was a half rate and it didn't show up as early uh, with that yellow symptom and it was too late, it was already tasseled, then it's really hard to recover it. So we had this scenario where it was half, half a rate, partially plugged, uh, 16 rows, one row out of 16, that's 6.25% or right at 125 acres out of, out of 2,000 acres of corn that was affected. A 200 bushel yield average, that gives you 100 bushel yield if you, if you figure half loss. And who knows what corn price is going to be, but say a cash price of $3, that's $37,500, you know, if it wasn't caught and, and, and rescued. That's a $3 corn. Um, if it's $4, then, you know, you add another 12500 to that. So uniformity is very important. I mentioned on his toolbar he had a, a knife that was partially plugged, and it was it, the way it turned out when we started investigating it. It wasn't until the following year we actually found the problem. That was in 2008, 2000, fall of 2008. He was starting to fertilize for fall for the 2009 crop, and we put a pump system on his toolbar for him with um, an orifice system and gauge tree so he could monitor every row. And so it was the fall of 2008 that he f we found out what row was plugged and why it was plugged, because that row pressure, that gauge, uh, was telling us something was wrong. And what happened was when they slid the EVA hose over the tube of the knife, it actually peeled the inside of the EVA back and it, it, it partially plugged the hole. Well, if he wouldn't have had the gauge tree on there, the pump system, he would have done it our 2,000 acres the same way that in, for 2009. So, so we've caught that right away, but you know, all the knives that are out there on the market, uh, there's, there's a lot of them, and, and they all have their, their place. I'm not going to um, uh, recommend one over the other. That knife selection is very important, as Kevin talked about, and, and all I can say there is you need to you need to do your own experiment and find out what knife works well in your soil types, what works well with your toolbar, what leaves the nicest strip for you. Um, what I have found in our part of the world and was working with some of my customers is the closer you get to planting your crop, that window between strip till and, and planting corn, the narrower that gets, the more you need to go to a narrow knife. Um, I've got a lot of customers that do use the, the wing or the mole knife. Uh, this one here on the end's got a kind of a mole design. They've got some heavier clay soils. They, they, they like it. It works well for them. And, and so that's what they need to use. But as they get closer to spring, if they don't get their strip tilling done all in the fall, then they'll lean towards a narrow knife. We use a, a 3 8 knife. Um, on our toolbars, and that works really nice. Uh, I'm not out there trying to break up compaction. I, I don't have a compaction problem. All the years of strip tilling, no tilling, uh, Mother Nature's taken care of my compaction problems, and, and we've, we've, we've done everything we can to avoid compaction problems with our traffic uh, of our harvest equipment. 
But we use a 3 8 knife, fall, spring, winter, spring. Um, it works really well for us. They wear out quicker. I mean, we're changing knives uh, a lot, but um, it sure leaves a nice strip for us. It, de it depends on soil moisture and how hard the ground is. The harder the ground, the faster they wear. That's with anything, you know, a disc blade, colder blade, shank. Um, acres, to answer your question, um, we'll go through a set of knives every year on a 30-foot on a machine. So, yeah, it, we're replacing knives every year. Um, when they're brand new, they, they don't work as well until they, they get a little bit of wear on them. I, I like to see this little front edge. Can, and I, I'm going to take Kevin's... Uh, little idea in there where he, he, he did some grinding. We might do the same thing, but we get about three, 400 acres on our knives. They, they really start to work nice because that, that blunt edge gets wore down a little bit and it just, it just slices right through. You know, so my goal is to precisely place nutrients and make the seed bed. I'm not trying to do any compaction remedies out there at all in our fields. Uh, one little thing I want to Actually, it's a big thing. Um, this little crimp in the hole drilled in some of these anhydrous knives, cut that off. That, that there will cause the streaking problem. And especially when temperatures get cold and tank pressures drop, your whole system drops pressure. So it's real easy for, especially your heavier clay soils, to, to plug those holes. And, and usually it's just one side, so then that knife ends up being a half-rate knife instead of a full-rate knife. So just take a hacksaw and cut that tip off. These here are open barrel. Make that an open barrel. That's a quarter-inch uh, uh, opening in there. If they're all the same, then your system should, you know, you, you got every chance in the world making everything equal then. But when one of them plug, then you got some issues. And, of course, we all like to run things as long as we can before we spend money, but uh, wear on the, on, the, on the tube does affect uniformity. Uh, when you start uh, seeing the sidewall of that tube uh, erode away, um, that knife or that row is actually gonna be applying uh, a certain percentage more of ammonia. So you're not gonna be even compared to the row next to it that's got a full tube. You got less resistance there. Ammonia is lazy too. It's going to follow path of least resistance. So you're going to get more ammonia flow out of that row because of that issue. I don't even know where to begin here um, because it's, it's, it's hard to grab that tiger by the tail. Um, and it's worse with um, cold temperatures as well as low tank pressure situations. Um, a lot of our delivery systems out there, you know, they're utilizing a heat exchanger. Uh, we've got to have some place to dump the, dump the uh, refrigerant, you know, the, 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 uh, the coolant lines. And uh, ideally, every row should get an exhaust line, and that way it's spread evenly. But there's some issues with that as well uh, because of back pressure and, and, and flow. But really pay attention if you're running a heat exchanger type unit, um, where your vapor rows are, and if you can have as many as possible spread out, that's, that's the most ideal condition. The other thing to keep in mind, too, is when you're running under low pressure, and I'm, I'm, I'm talking you know, 50, 60 pounds of tank pressure, ammonia tank pressure. Again, 
that's going to follow a path of least resistance. So when you've got uh, a toolbar that's got these three quarter inch exhaust lines versus three eighths product lines that's being pushed through a manifold, uh, you know, the ammonia is going to have a way of getting out of there really quick through the, through the, the uh, coolant lines. So uh, I know it's hard to, hard to park toolbars when it's cold, but um, if we're not doing a good job out there, it's, it's, it's not a good thing. This is probably my number one service call in the fall and spring um, with our toolbar setups uh, and our pump systems that we sell is tank pressure. And there's nothing um, really legally we can do about it. I, I know there's some air systems out there where they're pressurizing the tanks. Um, I, I don't endorse that, but you know, adding pressure to the tank does help. Pulling them in the shop at night in the, in the, in the heat, that helps, but that's not safe. Um, I had a customer who eliminated a whole family of cats one night because he did that. <laughs> it didn't bother him, but he had to sleep out in the shop for the next week. But uh, um, so tank pressure, you know, that's 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 a, a, an issue. Um, but there are ways we can we can deal with that. And the number one uh, issue is is valve size. Um, I got a lot of customers in, in remote areas of Nebraska, Kansas, uh, Missouri. They're satellite uh, fertilizer plants, and they're the redheaded stepchilds to the home office. Uh, you know, they get all the old tanks with the old valves and the old hoses, and, and a lot of them have got these one-inch valves on them. Um, and that's what, what I'm showing here is we got a one-inch. Um, it's got an inch and a quarter male in, uh, uh, inlet going in the tank. And this is an inch and a quarter, same size going in the tank. Uh, all your ammonia tanks that were built, I think after 71 or 72, correct, if somebody knows, correct me, but I think they all got inch and a quarter dips in them. Um, so you can screw a big valve in those tanks and you're gonna get twice the flow out of the, going from the one inch to an inch and a quarter. Uh, this is an inch and a half. You get even bigger flow out of an inch and a half. Um, and I've got a table here that shows that. Basically at 50 pound tank pressure, an inch valve, you're gonna get um, between 10 and 11 gallon per minute is your flow. Inch and a quarter, that jumps up to about 20 to 21 gallon a minute. And then inch and a half, of course, you're up there uh, 36, 37 gallon a minute. So why is that important? Well, if you're strip tilling and you want to maintain a certain speed so you can do a good job making your strip, you got to have the ammonia flow in order to do that. If you start creeping because you can't get the product out of the tank, then you're not going to make a nice strip. You're going to leave a lot of those. He showed a couple pictures there, Kevin did. Uh, where you can almost see the knife mark. Well, if you're not going fast enough for the sealing disc to do their job, you're not going to have a nice strip. And then you're going to have the variability in your, in your uniformity, your distribution of the fertilizer. Some more numbers to throw at you here. The, looking at a 30-foot toolbar, 12-row strip-till rig. You know, we're, if we're just using 150 pounds at six mile an hour, you know, that's 12.9 gallon per minute requirement. So right away, an inch valve, you're shooting yourself in the foot because we're only getting about 10 to 11 out of an inch valve. So you have to slow down in order to get the flow out of that valve. Uh, 
if you bump up to seven mile an hour, you know, there's your requirement. It just, go, it just keeps going up. It's a, it's a gallons per minute game. 160 pounds, six mile an hour. You're at 13.8, 16.1 at seven. It's even more demanding when you got a bigger toolbar. Uh, 40 foot toolbar. And this is where even the inch and a quarter valves on a single tank are gonna be limiting. Um, especially if you get start getting up in some of these higher speeds and, and some higher rates. See right there, a single tank isn't probably gonna do that, that number there. We're, we're at 21 and a half. If you take out restriction from your, your hose, uh, friction going through a breakaway coupler, you know, that's gonna get close to more like 20 gallon per minute. So um, that's where we see the double trailers, um, the trailers with two tanks, two setups, things like that. I've got some customers that are thinking outside the box a little bit, but where they've got problems with getting tank valves in the tanks, they're pulling two trailers and then running two separate hoses up, one dedicated line from each tank, and then running two breakaways. Because if this back one hitch pin comes out or, or you break the tongue and it rolls off on the downside of the hill, you want to make sure that the ammonia isn't going to sit there and leak all out. So two, two breakaways obviously are, are needed here. This isn't ideal um, because you've got two trailers, eight wheels that are making a nice little divot out there in the field. So up and down the hills, you can see this customer, he's in some rolling hills. Uh, you get into some heavy rain situations. And, and our rains anymore, um, the last 20 years, our weather pattern has just changed. I mean, we don't get the nice slow inch, inch and a half rains anymore. And I don't think our neighboring states here in Iowa and Missouri or, or even Illinois are experiencing that either. I think, I think it's the, the adverse rain events that happen. Um, two, three inches and 20, 30 minutes. And that can do a lot of damage, especially where you've got a double trailer track. Uh, I run into this a lot, not, not so much just with this particular product, but you know, the breakaways, um, couplings, things like that. You know, pay special attention to those. Um, again, this all relates to fertilizer delivery, but this system here, uh, the Y strainer with the ball valve, I mean, it's real common. Um, but we come across this with one uh, customer uh, we built a toolbar for, and, and he didn't put a pump system on it. We installed a, um, a regular heat exchanger unit, but I got to looking, and this ball valve isn't a, isn't a full port valve. Um, he had an inch and a quarter Y strainer and inch and a quarter fittings, but this ball valve, when you look on the inside, actually necked down to about seven eighths. So we created an orifice here, which restricts flow. Big hole, big flow. I wanna see a quarter, inch and a quarter hole from the tank all the way up into whatever delivery system you got, whether it's a heat exchanger or pump system, whatever. Some other issues with strip till. Uh, obviously, I've been talking about wet weather. The um, dry weather is obviously an issue too. And probably more years than not, we, we deal with dry weather. And dry weather can cause wind erosion. It can cause you know, fertilizer burn. Um, 
and that's probably our biggest problem, is fertilizer burn. What happens here is the ammonia, after it's applied, if it's too dry, uh, anhydrous ammonia is looking for moisture. It, it, it wants moisture to attach to. So if the soil is very dry, it's going to just wander around looking for something to attach to. And when it's doing that, it's obviously um, losing pressure. And when ammonia drops pressure, it begins to boil to a gas. It goes from a liquid to a gas under low pressure. So that gas is moving all around our strip and moving up towards the surface. Um, then when our corn germinates, we plant our corn two inches deep and it germinates and we get some of those uh, seminal roots uh, starting to come out. Um, they get into that hot zone where that vapor landed and that's when we start seeing our corn plants wilt up and sometimes die. So it's real important uh, in the dry areas out west to uh, realize that if, if if you can add water, and that's what we do, is we, uh, we start the pivots up. If, if we know it's dry, going into planting corn, we'll start the pivots up a week or so after we plant and run them around. We'll try to put on about an inch, inch and a quarter of moisture and then evaluate it and see, see how the roots react. If, if we've got the hot, hot spots all uh, cooled off, then we're good to go. My experience has been, and this can apply probably throughout the corn belt, but after uh, you apply ammonia in a strip, you really need an inch or more moisture in one event to negate that uh, salt ammonia burn. We've got the luxury where we can start a pivot up. Most people don't. But with that in mind, if you know it's dry, going into a field and planting, what we've done in the past on our dry, dry land acres is actually shift over a couple inches with our RTK and we'll plant on the side of that strip. Uh, we've got about an eight to 10 inch strip that's bare, you know, that we can plant in and we'll plant into undisturbed soil on the side of, of that strip. It's out of the knife mark. Generally, we don't have any ammonia that's migrated there, so we're, we're We've been pretty fortunate and we haven't had any burn there. Most of the time we plant right on the strip and cross our fingers. <laughs> and if, if we don't get rain, then we start up the pivots and spend money. I don't like doing that. It costs money to irrigate. It costs money to pump water. Dry weather also causes um, residue to be dry. And with today's corn heads and, and a lot of our uh, tools that we can manage residue with, vertical tillage, things like that, where we're leaving a lot of residue on top of the ground, that will blow through the wintertime and even into the spring. And that's another thing that's changed here probably in the last 20 years is our wind. This spring wasn't too bad. We had some windy days, but we had plenty of moisture snow through the winter time to, uh, to, to kind of mat that moisture, uh, residue down. But in 2014, we actually had residue drifts in fields, and it was really bad. Um, and I had a lot of customers, uh, myself included, in some of my fields where the residue just completely covered the strip. And it was two feet deep in some places. It's just un unreal. Um, so dry weather really 
can affect our residue distribution out in the field. Now, how do we, how do we deal with that? Well, some guys, <laughs> unfortunately, will go out with a disc and deal with it that way. Um, some will strike a match and burn it, and we don't want to do that either because that, that erases all the years of work with no-till and, and building residue in organic matter. Our planters are set up with uh, air adjust row cleaners so we can deal with those spots in the field. Um, as I mentioned, 2014, we had a lot of wind drifts, uh, wet residue drifts from the wind. This year, our drifts were from water. You know, 13 inches of rain moves a lot of residue too. So um, we had two years in a row where we had to be able to adjust row cleaners on the go uh, from the seat of the, the tractor on every field. Um, I, we run two planters, and I'm in one usually most of the time, but, but I've got help that run the planters as well. And having air adjusts, I know they're getting adjusted. If they had to get out and pull pins or knobs, then I know it wouldn't get, it wouldn't get done. But um, when we have those areas in the field, that have either blown the, re the wet residue has blown in and covered the strip, or we've had uh, flooding or water movement of the residue. Um, we can we can we can get it out of the way and, and get it planted. Well, thank you, Jerry, for sharing your experience and experimentation with overcoming some seasonal strip till challenges. Again, we'd like to recognize and thank our sponsor, TopCon Agriculture, for helping make this Strip-Till Farmer podcast series possible. I certainly look forward to your feedback on today's program, so feel free to drop me an email at jzemlicka at lessitermedia.com or give me a call at 262-777-2441. You can also keep up on the latest Strip-Till practices impacting your farm today by registering online at striptailfarmer.com for our free Striptail Strategies daily e-newsletter. And be sure to follow us on Twitter at Striptail F-A-R-M-R and on our Striptail Farmer Facebook page. Well, I hope that you'll join us again on March 2nd for the next episode in our 2018 podcast series. And a reminder that you can still register to receive our Striptail Farmer print publication at striptailfarmer.com. For Jerry Basinger, Topcon Agriculture, and our entire staff here at Strip Till Farmer, I'm Jack Semlicka. Thanks for listening.